Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he intentionally uses mismatched art for his basic lands. That's Matt Morgan. First off, I take offense to that because I intentionally <laughs> match my basics. But I've seen your Valduk deck, Matt. You intentionally mismatch. Uh, those you're, you're ruining my dad joke because you're offending my <laughs> aesthetics. Oh, okay. Anyways, well, I, I was going to tell you that I found where all the dads keep their jokes, and they call it the database. I like that one. <laughs> you know what? For EDH Rec as a data website, that's um, that's like an A plus dad joke right there. EDH Rec so, is a parental guide now. That's that's how it's supposed to be. I had not made that connection, and now I'm a little bit afraid of it, but cool. That's that's the world we're living in. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, up next, he would use mismatched basic art lands with all of his basics, but the problem is he doesn't ever seem to actually run any basics, so he never gets the chance. That's Dana Roach. You are not wrong, Joey. Um, by the time this show airs, Midnight Hunt spoilers should be well along being completed here, and we will be hip deep in werewolves, which would be a fantastic name for a band, I think. Hip Deep and Werewolves. Tell, tell me you wouldn't go see Hip werewolves. Deep and Werewolves in concert. I don't know for sure, Dana. Um, this has been a weird... I'm just going to go back to the data dad jokes. Anyway, this is the EDH Rec cast, I think. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the Commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Hey, Dana, what is it that we are talking about in this week's episode? We're going to give advice on how to give good deck advice. <laughs> that we are. I mean... Offering deck help to other players and seeking it for yourself, that's a really cool process to try and learn more about your decks, but there is kind of a finesse or a technique or just some tips to keep in mind when it comes to giving deck advice to other players to make sure that you really find the best stuff out there. It's just some cool things that we think will help improve that whole process for everyone when we're collaboratively putting decks together. So it just should be just a whole bunch of fun. Real quick though, before we get to our main topic, let's pause and thank the folks at the Command Zone because they handle the post-production work on the podcast, making it look as cool as it does. And we want to thank our sponsors for the show too. Uh, yeah, the EDH Rec cast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player, the two best places online to exchange your little green pieces of paper for little <laughs> multicolored rectangles of cardboard. Uh, just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question. You can then choose the vendor link down below, and doing that supports both the site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. We have patron tiers of all levels, and we have a Discord, actually, for patrons, where if you want some deck building advice, um, you can do so there's a channel exactly for that so head over to patreon.com slash edh retcast to support the show and actually what i see here we have a note that just says douglas blair is cool so i'm going to assume that <laughs> douglas blair is our very special patron that we're shouting out this week um so douglas thank you so much for the support thank you for being a patron a patron patreon over at patreon you went to patreon.com slash edh retcast and we definitely appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Douglas Blair. That's rad. Okay, fellas, let's get into our main topic here now. We are talking about some tips for giving good deck advice to other players. Let's waste no more time and just get right into it. Dana, start us off. What is a really, really super important tip when you are giving deck advice to other players to help make that process as good, as smooth as possible? The first thing I think you want to do is just ask questions about what they really want want. Um, 
you know, I, my opinion, and I actually wrote this in a tweet earlier today, um, when people ask for deck advice, it's been my experience what they usually want is they want ways to make their deck function smoother within the context of what it's already doing. Mm -hmm. um, the analogy I used was they want to know how to make their Honda Civic get better gas mileage. They don't want to be told to go buy a Maserati. <laughs> yeah. And I think, that you know, and maybe they do get wanting to get told that I don't know, but like the way you can verify that for sure is just to ask them what exactly they mean by, you know, how can my deck be improved? Like find out what they want, what their goals are, um, what their favorite thing is about that deck. Just ask questions to give you a better idea of what they're really looking for. Yeah. No, no matter what the conversation looks like, just to reinforce what Dana just said, like, Yes, you probably ask a couple questions, but chances are you're just, you're not asking enough. Like, and just assume like you're you're never asking enough. Um, you want to be able to help them and make it useful. Um, you can do do so just by understanding the person, understanding their motivation for the deck, uh, and just what they want to be doing with it. Like, chances are you're just you're not asking enough questions. You're not um, trying to dig deep enough. And and kind of a saying that uh, I know I've said to these two behind the scenes, but um, it, it kind of goes, you know, people always seek to be understood, but they never try to be understanding. They never try to understand other people first before they're understood themselves. So seek to just to, to understand what the person is that you're having that conversation with. And then I think the, the, the advice giving session will go so much smoother because you're giving more relevant advice to, you know, whoever you're trying to help. So, Dana, I'm curious, what are some of the kinds of questions that you would propose asking in this case? Um, so, you know, this this is a thing I do on my other show quite a bit. On Commander Central, we do deck techs several times a month. Um, and we actually have a checklist of questions we send out to people in advance before we do those deck techs. We ask things like, you know, what are your deck's weaknesses? What are the strengths? Um, what cards do you really enjoy playing in the deck? That way you don't suggest mm -hmm. removing that one fun pet card that they happen to like a lot that might not be a perfect fit for the deck. Um, just like, you know, what's your budget? What um, are you, what power level do you play at? Do you want to stay at that power level? Um, just things like that, just to get an understanding of, again, like just what they're actually looking for. I think too, that like there is kind of a, uh, there, there are a lot of assumptions I think that we can make whenever we see any given commander. If I see a Varen deck, for example, I might make a very quick assumption about like, oh, this is probably a very stormy, goes off very, very quickly type of deck. But the player might be after something completely different. They might be looking for, you know what? I just really, really, really like the Shark Typhoon card. So the entire deck is just built around Shark Typhoon as a card. And I just want to make that specific synergy happen. I'm not trying to storm off. I just want to make a lot of Flying Shark tokens. That might be the direction of their deck. And that's the kind of thing that needs to be uncovered with more personalized questions. And so asking, like, what is your favorite thing about this deck or those pet cards, like you mentioned, that can be very big and can help me as a person giving deck advice. I'm not going to make an assumption and give a bunch of advice based off of what I think a Vaverin deck would normally look like. Yeah, understanding, like, the win condition and, and how they want the deck to play that's like square one for me at least where i would would start is um how do you want to win like what do you want to be doing with the deck because if you start throwing out a bunch of different win conditions that like they didn't want to be playing um then you're kind of wasting both of your time at that point um so just finding out how they want to win what that win condition is that they want to kind of key on like joey if, if somebody wants to win with shark typhoon um knowing that it's going to help shape the questions that you ask moving forward and the, the cards that you suggest as well mm -hmm. so let's move now to another tip after we've asked some interesting you know deeper than just surface level questions and gone a bit further with that 
Matt, what's another tip that kind of stands out in your mind when giving deck advice that can help the process go really, really swimmingly? Um, so I would say the, the least helpful comment that you can give somebody is you should just play a different commander. Oh, um, God. That, that <laughs> helps absolutely zero. Um, a lot of times people pick a commander, um, maybe because it's available, maybe it's because it's something that they picked out. But like, even if it's a suboptimal commander in, in your personal opinion, um, telling people you should just play X instead um, you know, somebody's trying to build a, a green white deck and you say, well, you should just play two lane. Like that doesn't help anybody. Um, so right. kind of honoring the commander that they've chosen at that point. Um, that doesn't mean you can't suggest like, well, you know, give them suggestions based off what they've already chosen. And then deeper in the conversation, maybe then you can say, okay, so like, if you like doing this, have you seen this commander before? Don't say you should just play this commander, but there's always going to be a way to phrase things. Um, so saying like, well, have you seen this commander? This also does some pretty cool things that kind of look like what you're trying to do here. It's always just so much of a better way to phrase that that type of question. Tone tone is such a huge piece of it. But also just like, I don't know, th th there might be someone who like we know that the Tarask as a card was not like the most impressive thing that we've seen, especially given its lore within D&D. &D. But just saying you shouldn't play Tarask as a commander, that's not helpful. There's a personal connection no. there to that commander. So someone wants to use it, even if it is a little bit jank, that's probably the point. So, yeah, just saying, oh, well, you shouldn't use this Jund Commander. You should go and use Crash instead or something like that. It's just like, well, but I wanted to play with this one. And I'd even go a step further, actually, that like if the attitude is, well, this Commander, I have a certain feeling about it's not as good as some other things in the strategy that you could be doing instead. I would argue that as a person giving deck advice, you're probably missing out on something there because you could also learn something by engaging with the Commander that has been chosen. Even if you took a little piece of it for granted, there could be hidden synergies there that you uncovered during the process. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's definitely something is it's an opportunity for you as well to learn something. I think I think that's that's one of the best parts about looking at somebody else's deck. It's not just a chance for you to flex your knowledge. It's a chance for you to maybe pick up something new that you hadn't thought of. So try to make it a two way street. Try to make it a give and take where you're picking up something, too. And if you just are immediately dismissing their choices, um, whether it's the commander or just, you know, kind of the overarching theme of the deck, you're perhaps missing on a chance for you to learn something. Very, very much. And this is like very commander focused within the 99. But I do think that there's kind of sometimes a way that we should also resist suggesting large overhauls to the 99 as well, not just to the command zone. If the cards that we want to suggest during a deck advice session sort of rely upon us also suggesting a bunch of other cards to add in, that starts to seem like a pretty big overhaul. And you might lose a little bit of the spirit of the deck that makes that person like their deck in the first place. So suggesting too big of changes and changing the soul of the deck can also be a little bit sus. Yeah, just respect the theme, I think, too. Like, as much as we say respect to the commander that they've chosen, respect the theme. Like, if they, if they want to play mono green dinosaurs, cool, let them do that. Don't tell them, oh, you should do Stompy and you should do um, something completely different. Like, just let them, you know, enjoy what they've chosen already and help build upon that. Like, with, you don't need to be contrarian. You can just say, okay, cool. You know, here's, here's some ideas that might be helpful. And if you decide to go a different direction, here's also some other cards. Like, th like we said, there's always a way to suggest things without kind of just saying, well, you should just do something completely different because that is not helpful. And that's not actually yeah. giving advice. 
and, and it's always one of the main things that you see, especially on places like Reddit, where it's just like, hey, here's an idea. What do you think of this deck? And like a like there will be three comments saying you should just play a different commander. And it's just like, no, sorry, that's not helpful. Just yeah, I, I saw somebody they were asking for help with. I think it was an old Gnawbone deck, actually, um, that was like doing mono green something, obviously mono green. But somebody just said you should just play Zakama instead. I was like, what? That, that's, that's what? No, that's not no, how this works. It's a whole different deck at that point. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. The, the exception I would note here for this, and this is the kind of thing you would discover in step one of, of asking questions, um, there are sometimes situations where the problem the person has is the commander, you know, for example, might generate threat disproportionate to what the deck is trying to do. Um, mm. The easy, easy example that pops up would be like perhaps somebody cracked a Prime Speaker Vanifar back when um, that set was in standard. Like, oh, I want to build an elf tribal deck. You know, blue-green elves would be fun. I'll use Vanifar. When people see Vanifar, they're going to assume it's a combo deck and sure. tend to gun at you in a way that perhaps that elf tribal deck can't handle. So there are definitely situations where you want to say, hey, maybe you want to switch to a different blue-green elf that's not going to make everyone at the table assume you're going to pod shade off and win on you know turn four or something. Um, so for every rule, there's definitely an exception. Um, but yes, by and large, I think you will find that out by asking those questions in step one. Well, and right. even then, instead of saying, hey, people are going to think you're doing this, um, you can give it as a warning, just kind of turn it into an educational moment, too. And just, you know, if, if they're a newer person, yeah. they haven't been playing that long, you can just say, hey, you know, just just so you know, um, Prime Speaker Vanifar kind of has a reputation as being like a very like high powered deck. And, and it looks like you're not doing that. So that just might be something to look out for and maybe consider, you know, so, um, looking at a different commander if you do want to do this theme. Um, I think there's definitely ways to phrase it, too, just no matter who you're talking to, you can easing up the ease up the message a little bit while still you know giving the, all that same information over i'm gonna move us now to another tip that i'm personally very i really want to get to this one because this i think is one of the bigger things that i see when uh folks are putting a deck list out there and asking for tips one of the common things that i see is that a lot of players will suggest like five cards to add but only one card to cut and so my rule here is don't just suggest ads, also suggest cuts, because we can't play 120 card decks. Uh, and usually the cutting card process is just a lot harder than the adding in cards. We can find synergies a whole lot, but the actual process of knowing what to remove is usually the thing that the person needs the most help with, because we've all been staring at a 104 card pile for a while, right? Like it takes a long time. Sometimes those cuts can be agonizing. And that usually is one of the best places to begin having those discussions. Well, I think we've all done that with a brand new deck where you're like, okay, I'm at 104 cards. I'm going to roll my sleeves and pour a tumbler of gin and just sit down and like <laughs> make those last four cuts. And 45 minutes later, you're at 106 cards somehow. <laughs> so, so don't do that to somebody else and put them in that same position if you can avoid it. Yep. Very, very much. Um, yeah, like one of the things I like to do too when I'm suggesting cards for a deck for somebody, um, when I suggest the cut for that, like, okay, if you're going to add this, I would suggest removing this. Um, I try to stay kind of one for one in terms of role in the deck as well. So, you know, if I'm suggesting adding a removal spell, assuming they have a decent amount of removal, I try to suggest replacing, you know, this removal spell with that removal spell. Um, you know, I, I assume most of the time their balance is probably in line if, if someone's got a deck far enough along and they're asking for advice on it. But the other thing is you don't necessarily know a deck's rhythms and its ins and outs until you've played it. And mm. 
you know, you kind of want to assume that that person does. And, and I don't want to try to sh add suggestions that shake that up too much. I want to kind of keep the deck the way it currently is and just make suggestions that might make individual pieces in that deck better than what's currently there, because that's not going to just change how the deck plays in that person's hands. Yeah, I, I really like that suggestion, Dana, of just if you're suggesting a, re a removal card, um, suggest a removal card to have removed itself. Um, <laughs> keep those cards and the suggestions that you're keeping, like maybe like offer one for one, like keep them in the same category. Don't tell them, oh, well, take out this card that's on your theme and, and put in Ristic Study. I mean, that's kind of a right. no brainer. That doesn't really help anything. But look for cards that are kind of in that same category and give them, well, if you, if you like this card, you know, this one might be a little bit better, might be a little more helpful in more situations. Um, but keeping things in that same category, I really like that idea, Dana. This kind of goes into uh, what I'm kind of calling the Volo rule. Volo is that new Simic commander from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms where he's the human wizard, the 3-2 legendary four mana guy. Whenever you cast a creature spell that doesn't share a creature type with a creature you control or a creature type in your graveyard, you copy that spell. So he doubles up your creatures, which is really, really cool. But a very interesting facet of building that deck is that you have to pay a lot of attention to the different creature types that you're using and you usually don't want an overlap. So it's a kind of funky experience to be like building a Volo deck and saying, all right, I've got this beast here and I've got this fairy and I've got this serpent or this snake or this thopter. And then when players give advice for it, they'll be like, well, you should be playing this beast. And it's like, but I already have another beast. Or it's just like, you should be playing this fairy card. And it's like, oh, but but I do have a fairy already in, in here. And there's kind of a contradiction. That I do want to keep it to just the one type there. Like, I feel like that's a, a good thing that we could kind of keep in mind for more than just Volo, like when suggesting a card, you do also have to make a case to remove another card. And Volo is a really classic example of literally comparing these two beasts or these two serpents and stuff like that. So that is a an attitude that I want to carry towards all of my deck advice sessions. Yeah. Uh, um, and that applies to things, you know, beyond Volo too. Um, again, that's, that's a, a little bit part and parcel with not understanding maybe someone else's deck's rhythms. Um, there's just a lot of times there's a chain of things that, that are in play, maybe not even as simple as I already have a beast in the deck. Maybe it's this card doesn't look good, but what you don't understand is in that particular deck, it works well with this other thing that happens to work well with that one commander in a way that you don't see unless you've been playing that deck for a long period of time. Right. I think Volo is like one of the easiest places that you can see it. You know, when a suggestion comes in like, oh, why aren't you playing Apex Devastator, which is a Chimera Hydra? And it's like, well, I am playing this other, I'm playing Colonian Hydra in that spot. And so making the suggestion to be, you know, a conscientious deck advice giver, it would be very much like, you know, I would have to not just suggest the thing. I also want to help them make a cut and I would have to compare those things. And I think that's a very easy example to look at for Volo in particular, but it applies to so many other commanders where to suggest adding one card in also means that you have to take something out, which is going to be the hard part. It's really hard to weigh those cards sometimes, but it's a really important lesson and it applies to more than just this particular Simic commander, but it's a really good standout rule in my mind, I guess. Well, well another thing I think you want to keep in mind when you're making these suggestions, particularly these days, is budget does matter and it's a big Ooh. deal to a lot of people. And particularly in the last year, some of these cards are crazy expensive. So, I mean, you need to just find out what the uh, range of budget the person has for changes to their deck because it doesn't take very long for a couple of swaps to wind up costing a significant amount of money. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Like, 
Commander is not a cheap format if you don't want it to be. It can be a cheap format, but also it can not be if you you know barely try. Um, but yeah, so telling people like, <laughs> well, you should just be playing Mana Crypt and Psychonic Rift and, and throw out like a bunch of like 20 plus dollar cards. For a lot of players, that's just not particularly helpful. So having an understanding of, of what their budget is, um, if their their budget is like, this is a $50 deck, um, maybe you know digging deep and finding some budget options, that's going to be something that could turn into, like Dana kind of talked about, it's a two-way street. It's an educational moment for you too to kind of find some, some budget ideas that fill certain roles in a deck. And the role filling there is, I think, very interesting too, because that can kind of guide you a bit better on where to put the budget that is available. So, for example, there are a lot of cards that have pretty good budget alternatives. So, you know, Craterhood, for example, that's a very ridiculous one, but there is an end raise for runners out there. And you know what? That does a pretty respectable job of simulating that same effect. Or Stoneforge Mystic is a crazy expensive, you know, equipment tutor kind of card, but an open the armory isn't that expensive. So there are some pretty direct swaps out there. And there are also a bunch of like budget mana rocks or color fixing dual lands that don't cost a whole lot. And that can be the kind of thing that diffuses a lot of budget. Whereas the more unique cards, like there's only one card that does what Cathar's Crusade does, for example. So that might be a better way of figuring out where the budget needs to be focused within that deck too. Yeah. Spreading the budget around is going to be super helpful because I I think I've won more games with a bunch of like two to five dollar cards than I have with decks that have you know my my dual lands for example. Um, just spreading the budget around and then kind of finding what's going to be important to help the deck function and investing there. Um, it's a, if it's a five color deck, like maybe put a little more priority on the mana base. Um, if it's a two color deck, you don't need to do that. So finding what part of the deck could use that uh, a good chunk of the budget for the deck, that's just a good place to start and just understanding what is important, what's going to help the deck function the most. Let's focus that as far as financial goes. Well, and sometimes you can even find kind of the opposite when you're looking at a deck. You can find situations where the person has an expensive card in the deck that for whatever reason might have a budget alternative that works just as well. And then they can use the money or use that expensive card to swap for something else that will be more useful. Um, one that I've seen quite frequently in decks is like in an Orzhov deck or something that's running Damnation. Um, now that's had a couple of reprints and it's down to around $25, but it was much more expensive than that for a long period of time. Mm. Um, and if you're playing an Orzhov deck, Wrath of God is literally the same card in white as Damnation that you can get for, you know, three to five dollars. Um, and since Modern Horizons 2, we've had Dam that was printed that's basically a better Damnation if you're playing Orzhov colors where you can run it. Um, and that's, you know, around four dollars as well. So there's sometimes situations where you can make these suggestions like, hey, if you swap out that Damnation for a, you know, Dam or a Wrath of God or something, you can then use that Damnation to pick up a expensive card that you wouldn't otherwise be able to maybe have the budget for in that same deck. Yeah, Dana, I had a similar experience. Um, I was playing with someone who they were playing fairly casually, but they had randomly bought a, a booster pack and opened a mana crypt and they didn't realize how expensive it was. Um, but they had it in a very, very casual, very low powered deck. Um, so like I was surprised when I saw it come out on like turn 10. Um, so I, I said like, man, that's a pretty pricey card there. And, and I kind of let them know like this card is, you know, over a hundred dollars. Uh, and they're like, oh, oh, wow. So they promptly like went and talked to the store owner and said like, what can you give me in trade? And, and they got an entire deck for what that mana crypt cost <laughs> sure. them. And yeah. they were so much more happy. Um, and I know that's not 
going to be relevant for everyone. But sometimes, yeah, that point, Dana, of just downgrade one card to fund the rest of the deck, like that, that's something that I'm sure everyone has had some sort of experience with. Um, but yeah, so just helping people understand, you know, maybe if you take a lateral move here, um, you free up some cash, invest in other parts of the deck. Especially because like one very expensive card in the deck is not going to have near the same amount of impact as several $3 or several $5 cards in the deck. Like when the budget is spread around, you will feel it more often because the chances of you actually drawing that one expensive card every game, not high in a 99 card format. Yeah, the Underground Sea in my Ukima and Kazer deck is purely a luxury thing because I already had it. Um, it does not add win points to that <laughs> deck at all. Um, it is less powerful than the Hardened Scales, which is a $5 card. Well, that's another one that fluxes too. But that's another thing to just be aware of. It's just like, oh, budget is a really important thing to keep an eye on. But you're totally right that like that's a way less expensive card that is doing a lot more work. And putting yeah. more effort into that type of style is going to pay off way more dividends in the future. And that's the type of thing to be certainly conscientious of. Moving on to another one. Here's another personal point that is, I think, I think this might be the very first thing that I look for whenever I see a brand new deck list. One of the things that I love to do is look for non-bows. Look for weird rules interactions that maybe would cause the deck to stumble over itself or that don't quite work within the rules the way that maybe it seems at first like they do. So for example, a recent challenge of stats that we've used is going back to Volo, how the card Guardian Project doesn't actually work with Volo because Volo makes token creature copies that would then not trigger the Guardian Project because it doesn't care about tokens. And then the regular creature card would enter and then that wouldn't trigger Guardian Project because there's already a creature, the token, that has that same name. So that card is kind of a non-bow with that commander. Those, I think, are like laser focus. one of the first things that I want to find within a deck because I feel like it's a great place to make a cut and to help players out to prevent them from running into accidents or stumbles while actually in the course of gameplay. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all played that deck before, either been in a pot of it or done it ourselves, where you find yourself in a position where you can't do the thing you want to do because you're wearing lightning, one of your creatures has a lightning greaves on and you can't target it yourself. Mm. And you don't have another creature available to swap it out to or something to then, you know, buff your creature or put another aura on it or something. Um, like, that's definitely the kind of thing that happens very frequently. And, and sometimes you can catch it before the person catches it mid-game and, and winds up being unable to deal with the situation. Well, I was actually going to use that exact um, situation there, Dana. I, I was helping somebody with a Valduck deck of their own, and they had zero other creatures than Valduck. So the deck was in completely... Um, equipments, auras, stuff like that. Um, and they had, I think it was four different shroud type of mm -hmm. enablers. And I told them, okay, so th this isn't really like, yes, you want to have like one or two, like lightning greaves is still a very, very powerful card, but you want to watch it with the shroud because you have no other real way of moving your equipments off of Valduk so that he doesn't have shroud to put more equipments on there. So that was something that they kind of found is, do I want to put more creatures in there? Do I want to cut back on the shroud cards? Um, so yeah, definitely if you, if you see something like that, um, kind of giving them a, a helpful nudge of, oh, hey, just so you know, this doesn't work the way you hope it would, um, definitely you is going to be appreciated on more times than not. 
Right. When it comes to parallel lives in an Ave progenitor ooze deck, that's also a thing that doesn't quite work out. That's the type of non voters certainly be looking for. And actually, another uh, example that comes to my mind right now as I'm thinking about it is the you mentioned Shroud there, Matt, but a huge one I think is also protection, especially if you're playing like a heavy auras deck or something like the Sword of Cycle as well, Sword of Feast and Famine, for example. Those protections are really, really great abilities to keep you protected from enemy creatures and from enemy, you know, removal spells. But I have certainly run into cases where I didn't realize it, but my own Sword of Feast and Famine was preventing me from enchanting or using a spell on my own Virdis, for example. He's got protection from black and from green, and that sword's really, really good, but that does affect the cards in my deck that I would need to use to target him or enchant him. It would make those things fall off, so I'm going to play fewer of those auras in that deck now because they don't quite line up. And that is a piece of advice that I received from a very conscientious deck advice giver because I hadn't originally seen that non-bow just kind of sticking right there in the deck but a fresh pair of eyes was able to snag it right away and it was a really really helpful moment well well joey if if you want to talk about really helpful moments um i think a really helpful moment that we always have on this show um is challenge stats so why don't we <laughs> why don't we switch over to that and have another helpful moment for everyone um instead of just letting you have all of them oh how very dare but yes challenge the stats oh how the turntables <laughs> oh how the turntables yes challenge the stats it's one of our favorite segments here on the show because there's so much data on edhrec but we don't always agree with it you know sometimes they think that cards are seeing too much play or too little play so we love to challenge those stats and of course don't don't forget um challenge stats is sponsored by altersleeves.com it's an awesome website if you want to pick up some extra bling for your cards and for your decks um you can suggest them even too, like I am suggesting to you right now. Um, so this helpful deck advice this week, um, head over to altersleeves.com slash EDH RecCast. Um, that'll let you know that we sent you over there. Supports the show, which we definitely appreciate. And you're able to get custom art sleeves for all of your cards, which includes some of our handsome faces even. <laughs> Very nice. Dana, let's start it off with you this week. What's your challenge? Um, my challenge here was sent to us by listener um, at Sir, Char- Sir Charles Gaiman on Twitter. Um, I think it's Gaiman and not Gammon. Um, and his suggestion is for Arami of the Dead Tide decks. For those who don't remember, um, Arami is a merfolk wizard that can tap to exile cards from your graveyard equal to the number of opponents you have and target creature card in your graveyard gains Encore until end of turn. And what Encore does is when you Encore something, you exile the creature and pay its mana cost and you make a token of it for each opponent you control that attacks um, this turn of Fable. The suggestion here is for the card Grim Guardian that's currently only showing up in 12 of the 1300 Arami decks in our database. Uh, Grim Guardian is a Enchantment creature with constellation, whenever it or another enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, each opponent loses a life. Um, so if you happen to encore Grim Guardian when it's in your graveyard, those Grim Guardians are all going to come into play and see one another, and you're going to do nine damage to the full pod. And looking at um, Arami decks, Penharmonicon is a very frequently ran card in those decks <laughs> because, you know, to abuse that ETB trigger um, off most of the stuff that it's going to Encore, well, then that turns into 18 damage to a full pot of Panharmonicon. So for, for three mana, that's a good bit of damage just in general. That's taking a quarter of everyone's life total almost, um, let alone if you happen to be able to take half of it out with a um, trigger off of the Panharmonicon. So I think that's a really good suggestion. It definitely should be in more than just 12 Arami decks for sure. 
Grim Guardian is a card like I just don't know how it hasn't caught on in more Enchantress decks that are playing black. Like that card just seems so good. Like Doomwake Giant has played, but ne- Grim Guardian isn't. Like I just I I've never understood that. It, it but I mean Doomwake Giant also that's a great constellation to give all of your stuff all of your opponents stuff minus one minus one. That also seems like a really great target for Aromi too. Is this a double challenge? Like that's a really good suggestion. Well, and and the thing about Grim Guardian too with the way it works with Encore, they don't go away those copies until the end of the turn. So then you have your second main phase if you happen to have more enchantments in hand to ca- cast those enchantments and again get multiple triggers. So like that's just the, you know the nine damage to each opponent is just kind of the worst case scenario. It could be more if you're able to take advantage of that second main phase. Arami Enchantress is it, it's coming up. There we go. It's the new deck. I I, I absolutely love it. Y'all, I might need to build this because you know me, I love my reanimator. Um, I'm going to move to my challenge now, though, because I can already, s- I, I can sense Matt's eyes glaring at me, bringing up reanimator whenever I can. Don't worry, Matt. That is true. My challenge this week, my challenge this week is not based on reanimator, but it is based on the fact that we've got a lot of treasures going out in the world recently. Treasures are everywhere, especially after the week of AFR. Just so many artifact tokens entering the battlefield all over the place, which is caused me to give another look to the card Leonin Elder. This is a one-mana, one-one cat cleric that says whenever an artifact enters the battlefield, you may gain one life. It's not just to enter the battlefield under your own control, it enters the battlefield in general. So even if an opponent is smothering tithing all over the place, you can gain a lot of little life increments here in a lot of really big ways. And particularly, I think this is important for decks like the new Trelasara or Karlov of the Ghost Council that love to get very, very small, just a dozen of small increments of life gain here and there to buff themselves up to deal a ton of commander damage. This is a cat cleric that only shows up in 334 decks, but now that treasures are such a mainstay in EDH, I really think that this is a, quote, soul sister type of effect that deserves a second look. You know, Joy, I'm really proud of you for suggesting a card like this. So yeah, this is, is it's really good, um, really good way to punish all those um, food tokens and the, the treasure tokens and all those different tokens that are coming out now. Yeah, it's a good call. I'm so glad... Usually, you know, you, Mr. Selesnia, and me, Mr. Golgari, we don't usually see eye to eye, but I'm glad that we could find a connection here, Matt. We, we'll, we'll bond every now and then, yes. And when we do, it's, it's <laughs> truly magical. Indeed. All right. Let's move to your challenge. Round us out. So this challenge actually is from a deck I believe you had, have, um, still do have, um, Zafai Thunder Conductor or Collector, depending on what packs you open. Um, <laughs> but in Zafai, the Thunderous One, um, a card that I think is not seeing enough play uh, is Spreading Insurrection. So Spreading Insurrection is a sorcery for four and a red that says gain control of target creature you don't control until end of turn, untap that creature, and it gains haste until end of turn. So we've seen all sorts of these effects before, um, Act of Treason, all of these, um, they're all over the place. And, and paying five mana for one seems to be a little sus, I'll admit. But when you consider this one has Storm, which means that whenever you cast it, you get to copy it for each other spell you've cast this turn, this can get a little out of hand with Zephy. So spreading insurrection, being five mana, satisfies the magecraft ability on Zephy, where if a spell's mana value is five or greater, whenever you cast or copy it, you create a four, four blue and red elemental creature token. Uh, that's pretty great considering that spreading insurrection hits that five mana slot. You're gonna copy it several times more often than not. Um, and also you're gonna get a, a whole bunch of four fours, but also for on B, you're going to get all of their creatures too. You're going to take a lot of blockers out of the way and attack them with them. So it's a great win-win type of situation 
only 11% of Zephy decks are playing it so far, and it's fairly new. It did um, come out in Modern Horizons 2, but there's so much upside here. Um, it looks like a lot of players, you know, in the typical decks that we're seeing, they're really trying hard to hit that 10 CMC or the 10 mana value um, spot for the spells, which there's a lot of upside there. That's a very, very splashy effect. But if you're just focusing on that five mana value spot, I think you're going to be able to get a lot more consistent value from that. You're going to be able to cast your spells more often than not. And if you're playing cards like Spreading Insurrection, um, you're creating so many 4-4s, it's not even funny. I can totally... Matt, we're seeing eye to eye once again because this is a card I've used in the Zephyr Precon that I upgraded. And yeah, it does a lot of work. Getting a whole bunch of 4-4s is really really easy in that deck like no joke i've cast one of those five mana storm spells and i've come out the other side with over 24 fours and trying too hard to get to that 10 mana threshold i feel like would be a red herring in the way that i'm playing that deck and i just want a whole bunch of four fours whenever i cast like one simple spell just cantrip into cantrip into small ritual into cantrip into playing a five mana storm card i love this challenge this is a really really good one definitely being underplayed i'm glad we're seeing eye to eye so like high five just <laughs> Wait, Dana will we high seeing, five too. So just there. Are, would you say that we're seeing eye to eye of the storm? No. Did that that didn't work? That did, all right. We're no longer seeing eye I, to eye anymore. I'm um, sorry. I ruined yeah. the moment. <laughs> Why don't you just move us on into the second half of the show? Let's do that. Let's get back to our main topic, talking about giving good deck advice when folks are looking to improve their decks and just ways that we can be better about that whole process and learn within that process as well. Dana, let's pass it back to you. What's another lesson that stands out to your mind, something that you want to keep in mind when giving good deck advice? Um, yeah, so the, the context of the, the deck or the commander is very important as well. Um, a really obvious example here would be the um, red-green Omnath and the red-blue-green Omnath and four-color Omnath are all ostensibly landfall decks, but they all play very differently from one another. Yeah. Not all landfall effects are kind of the same or, or what you want from those effects are the same necessarily. Um, even things like um, Phylath and red-green Omnath, which are you know the, the same color pair at least, they still play very, very differently. So knowing what the specific deck is trying to do in the context of that commander and how the person has it built, built is very, very important. I love that. I, I think it's very easy for us to just say, oh, it's a landfall deck. And for us to assume that we know what that means in general, but there are different flavors of landfall deck, as you just mentioned. And, and even just like Phylath, it comes down and it automatically populates the board. And then you can improve that board a little bit later. But Red Green Omnath, he comes down and then you want the landfall drops to fill up the board. That's a very different type of tempo. So just saying, oh, it's a landfall deck. There's like 18,000 different flavors of landfall deck. Well, and don't forget the, uh, like if you're playing AC Tyrant of Gary Straits, that's a completely different type of landfall deck where you play a land and then you pick up your entire deck. That's a very, very different, <laughs> very different strategy. I'm, I need to uh, clarify. But yeah, like it, every single deck operates a little bit differently. So just kind of paying respect to what the commander's role is in that theme that they're trying to do, um, really important. Like it, there's different flavors of Spellslinger decks. Like some people are trying to do kind of the the Mizzix version um, and, and have like Mizzix's Mastery, all that kind of fun stuff. 
but also there's just you know straight up like i'm going to cast a whole bunch of spells um kind of like some of the new um prismari commanders where they just want to cast as many spells and deal a whole bunch of damage so yeah there's there's all sorts of different ways to be doing dang near any strategy so um, making sure that you're, you're feeding into the specific deck that they have built the the commander and theme combo that's going to help you keep um, relevant information going their way i i really love that dana your challenge was for a realm of the dead tide that's a commander that isn't going to want a whole bunch of legendary creatures in its deck compared to other traditional reanimator stuff loves legendary creatures because those tend to be the ones with the most powerful effects but we're not getting additional copies of those i think of my mimeoplasm deck for example like I would I love a whole bunch of legendary creatures in that deck and the experience I have with that deck wouldn't translate very well to an around me player because there's just a pretty big mismatch with how I'm reanimating stuff versus how they're reanimating stuff. It's all still a reanimator deck, but man, the experience is so, so different. So I would hate to give bad advice based off of assumptions that I've made just off of one style of play. Well, and the differences in terms of context. Um, it's not just that. It, it's differences in how you build an individual commander as well. Um, individual commanders can have very different deck lists in the 99 below the same um, person heading the deck. Um, you know, we've referenced this in the past. We talked about it on a very, very early show um, where Matt and I both have Gliss of the Trader decks and we compared those deck lists. And aside from lands, we had like a dozen cards in common, I think, over the course of the entire deck. Um, they were both Glissa decks, but they played very, very differently and had very, very different cards in those decks because of how we had those lists built. I mean, saying that somebody has a deck that has a lot in common with any of your decks, Dana, that's kind of a non-bow in itself because <laughs> sure. you're, you're never playing decks that like other people are, are wanting to play, so... That's that's very true. But I love that example. Um, another one that comes to mind would be Trostani, the uh, populate commander that also gives you life when your stuff enters the battlefield. There are definitely different ways to build that deck. And one player might have gone more on the life gain route. And so it, the deck is really devoted to gaining as much life as possible. And the creatures and the tokens are kind of a means to a life gain finish. And the experiences that they have are going to be very different to a person who went for the Selesnia populate specifically tokens route and doesn't care as much about the life gain. Just that one commander has very diverging build paths. That's a huge thing to keep in mind. Yeah, um, the, the really obvious one here is Atraxa. <laughs> you know, Atraxa kind of got a reputation because it was maybe that first hyper popular commander that everyone around you seemed to build. That was kind of when commander was really first breaking through in a big way. And it was a very popular deck. And it was just the kind of thing that that was the first one where I really remember going to various shops and there was just attraction decks everywhere. Um, but there wasn't always a lot of overlap too. Like you would see attracts in fact, and you would see attracts of plus one counters, and you would see attracts of super friends. And I've played against an attracts a horror tribal deck before. Like there's a gazillion ways you can build that attracts a deck, and cards that are good in one that you might say, why are you running this? might just not be good in that person's particular build. Dana, that's such a, I mean, there's a classicness to that example, but man, it is so true. Even like Powerhouse Command, Golos is another example that we would shout out. There are literally infinite ways to take Golos. It's all of the colors. It can do all of the things. Muldrotha is another. Like the things that you're after for those decks, that's definitely why those asking those questions is so important because there's so much that you can certainly do with it. And it can totally be true that one person's experience with Muldrotha in a specific strategy, in a specific style will have paid huge dividends for them but there's also potentially a different style that a, another uh, Muldrotha player would be after so like that's just a, a very huge thing and 
I mean, in the specific commander instances, I think it's totally true in specific strategy instances we've already mentioned, but I think it also applies to just colors in general. You know, there are different styles of playing mono red as an example. A Duretti deck is a little bit slower on average. It's filling up the graveyard and pulling artifacts out of it with its uh, with that Planeswalker's ability. That's going to be a very different type of tempo to playing like a Krenko deck or even my Martin Stromgald deck. Those are very different feelings, even though they're both mono red. So across color, across strategy, and within the same commanders, there are so many differences that you can come up and, and see. And that's just, I think that's really cool as a commander, but it's certainly the kind of thing that we want to be paying attention to so that we can learn more as advice is happening. Yeah, it just goes back to the to the opportunity and, and looking for that chance to to be educated just as much as you're looking to educate. So yeah, I definitely agree. Mm-hmm, very much. All right. There's one other tip here that I kind of personally want to get to that is probably a little bit hard to communicate, but I'll do my best. And it's basically acknowledging our own biases or sometimes the baggage that we bring into evaluating different cards, which sometimes comes from the different experience or the different strategies that we're playing, but can also not necessarily puzzle piece mesh well with what other players are doing in their decks. As a kind of strange example, I once saw someone on Reddit telling another Kyrick player not to play extort cards because they didn't personally like extort cards. Extort being that mechanic where you can pay a black mana and then drain a life from each of your opponents. And Kyrick is that Phyrexianizing mana guy, the mono black commander who can just let you pay life instead of paying the black mana, where extort is super, super good because every time you cast a spell, you can just pay two life and then gain three life. So it's always a plus. It's super, super awesome. But there was kind of like a, a hang up there that I noticed and I'm like, mm, I don't think that quite meshes with what the other player is after. And I am not innocent of this, there's totally going to be instances where I don't like the fact that this card is a color break, so I don't like that card. But that card could be still very, very good in someone else's deck. So acknowledging our own personal biases is really, really important when we're suggesting cards or claiming which cards to cut, because we need to be aware of what that player is after, not just what we think about a card. I mean, if if I gave cards only based off stuff that I like, I would never suggest a blue card. Um, and that limits me in, in giving advice to people. Um, so yeah, just, it limits yourself if you're, if you're taking all of your personal biases and, and preferences and applying them to everyone. Um, it shuts off a lot. There's so many cards out there. And, and so, um, cutting yourself off from a swath of those to be able to help other folks. Um, you're really only doing yourself a disservice because you're, you're making yourself less helpful because you're letting your personal tastes and preferences get in the way of you giving better advice. I mean, there there are sometimes things that you just don't like against all logic or reason. Um, you know, I'll use an example. Um, I, I'm not a fan of Faithless Looting. I, I recognize it's a very powerful card, and I recognize it has a lot of strengths in Commander. Um, for mm-hmm. me personally, I don't really do anything reanimation wise in red. So I just I, I I almost never want to like dig down for a combo or put cards in my graveyard. I I just want cards in hand. Faithless Looting doesn't let me get cards ahead. So I, I don't like it. It never feels good to me. That doesn't mean it's not a good card though in some decks. It doesn't mean it's not a good card in someone else's hands based on their play style. Um, so I'm not going to like just flatly refuse to, re- to recommend Faithless Looting in a deck where it may make a lot of sense just because it doesn't fit my personal play style. You need to kind of be open-minded about how everyone else may play differently than you and have different likes and dislikes than you. 
Well, I don't understand at all why you would not enjoy putting cards <laughs> I, into your graveyard. I, 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 just, I knew I, you would not understand that one, Joey. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. But like that is a thing that is important for me to know when looking at decks that you are looking to get advice on, too. It's just like, here's a thing that just like, for whatever reason, discarding the cards, getting milled, for example, getting milled is a thing that a lot of players don't really enjoy the feeling of. So if there are good cards that also have a self-discard component or a self-mill component, that would be great for the deck, but the players don't necessarily like that feeling, then I'm not, like, it would be irresponsible for me to suggest, oh, Dana, you should still be playing Faithless Looting. I can't believe you. You're just ignoring value. You're leaving value on the table. Like, that's not constructive. It wouldn't be useful for me to do that, even though I do wish you would play a little bit more Reanimator, but that's a different story. Well, and, and this little exchange that we just had here, um, kind of brings me to my next point was just know that you may not necessarily be the expert on any given deck. Um, I mean, Joey, you're the resident necromancer as, as Joseph, as a necromancer myself, Schultz and, and <laughs> Dana's all about getting that value. So like everybody, you know, has those, those preferences that they have. And, and so being able to defer to other people always has been very, very helpful. I, I know all three of us have been tagged in threads asking for deck advice and, um, I've had to kind of pass off and say, you know, I, I don't really know how to play this type of strategy. Um, maybe you could ask this person. Um, even if you can't give the advice, I know a lot of people want to be able to give advice. Um, sometimes it's just as helpful to kind of direct people to somebody else who can be more helpful than yourself. Um, it, it, you know, Commander is a very social format. So turning the deck building process into a social experience too, um, it's never hurt, you know, and just helping and getting more people involved because then it becomes kind of a, you know, the, the village is raising the children kind of a scenario where, um, even though I'm not doing one thing specifically, I'm helping find somebody else who can do it better than I can. I, I totally love that. Like, there, there's kind of a, you know, having gotten to know you guys specifically, I know that when I'm looking for something that's combat-based or, you know, some cool onboard tricks that Matt is the person that I think I'd get a little bit more from. And if I'm looking for very hyper-tuned, get a bunch of, like, tiny cool polishes here like draw two cards lose two life and get this with a little tiny incremental stuff that's certainly kind of within dana's wheelhouse and that is the kind of thing that we discover together i totally love that and if someone comes to me asking for help with something aggro i'm gonna be like please talk to matt morgan because i don't know what i'm doing in this case at all and it's good to recognize those things well you know i i've gotten tagged before with questions about like hey my this is my competitive deck do you have any ideas with this i'm like i know i don't like i'm the wrong person to ask but Here's this person and this person who I know right. are content creators and do a lot of CEDH stuff. They absolutely would be the ones to hit up with this one. Yeah, Matt, I totally love that point. You might not be the expert. And as you said earlier, this can also be a learning process for the person who is giving advice as well, because that just makes it so much more fun. Okay, so having talked now about a whole bunch of different ways to, you know, be more conscientious or to give better deck tips to other players. I want to finish out the show with a small conversation about how do we get better at taking deck advice? Dana, do you have any ideas about, you know, when you've put a list out there and you start to get suggestions, are there any things that you want to keep in mind so that you are better at the receptivity piece of it as well, not just the giving advice portion? Well, sure, because, you know, we talked about keeping an open mind. That definitely goes both ways. Um, nobody likes being told they're wrong. And even if you are someone actively seeking deck advice, when someone gives it, it's very easy to, you know, even if it's just unconsciously, take that as a, a question of you being mistaken about your deck. You know, when someone's like, well, you could run this, this, and this, even if those suggestions make a total, total sense in your deck, 
it can be easy to get defensive about it. Be like, well, I'm not running that because of this or or whatever to push back against that because you don't want to feel like you've brewed your deck wrong, basically. Um, I, I, I get that and I've absolutely been there, um, particularly in the past. I think I've gotten better about it, but there were times years ago um, on Reddit or even on some old message boards where people post commander stuff where I like, you know, post a deck list asking for ideas and get a bunch of ideas like, oh, I feel bad for missing all of this stuff and I don't want to take all this advice because it admits I admit all, miss all this stuff. So um, be open-minded about that and try not to take it personally when you get those suggestions because you asked for them. So like people are going to offer them up for sure. <laughs> okay. I like that. Matt, what do you think? I mean, the, the big thing for me is when, when people ask for advice or when I do, um, try to communicate as much about the deck ahead of time. That way they're not suggesting cards and you're saying, oh, well, I, I don't want to play that card. Or they'll they'll say, well, maybe this card isn't really the best. And then you chime in, well, oh, that, that, that card's a sacred cow in the deck. Like, I, I'm not taking that out. Like, give as much information up front about the deck that you want help with. That's just going to help direct everything. And it kind of kind of answers the questions that we talked about asking already. Um, that way, too, you're, you're not kind of changing and moving the goalposts, um, but just give as much information up front as possible. Say, uh, I'm building this deck. Uh, I want to be doing this type of thing. This is the win condition I'd like. Um, here's a few cards I, I want to make sure I'm incorporating. Um, that's just a, a basic conversation piece, but that helps people know you know, if we're going to suggest things, we're not going to suggest against doing those certain things. So just giving as much information up front um, always is going to be helpful when it directs the responses that you're going to get. I I really like that. I've got another thing personally that I think is kind of especially in the middle of you guys there. But just if someone suggests cards for you and then the response that you have immediately is, well, no, because it's like, ah, uh, like if someone says, hey, I think that these cards could cause complications and maybe you'd want to, these might be the cards that I would cut um, or at least take another critical look at. And you're like, no, well, I can't cut those. Like you're also not necessarily being productive in that part of the conversation either. When we're looking for deck advice, we're not just looking to put the deck out there and for it to be praised for how good it is. You do have to kind of take the, <laughs> Dana, as, as you sort of said, it is just like, there's an admittance to it that like, oh, that's a thing that was missed. And yeah, you, <laughs> you just have to be willing to uh, accept that thing while also kind of keeping in mind that you don't necessarily need to take every single piece of advice out there either. Like it's a very, very tough thing to balance. There are certainly cases where someone who's giving advice seems like maybe they missed a certain strategy or there is definitely a very justifiable reason that maybe they didn't quite clock onto. But at the same time, if you have that reaction for 100% of the cards that someone suggests cutting, there is kind of a known, your own personal bias there that might be informing the way that you're trying to get advice. And that can be a problem too. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely people on old deck building websites that I would, I would frequent. Um, and you just kind of got to know the usernames of if you, if somebody asked for help or advice and you gave it, um, they gave a lot of those responses like, no, I don't want to take that out. Um, so you just stop giving advice to those people. It's, it's a good way to alienate <laughs> help um, is just by constantly poo-pooing on suggestions. Um, so yeah, be receptive to advice of people because people, just as much as you want to take time to help somebody else out, like there are people t you know taking time out of their day to help you out. So being receptive to that help um, always is going to go go very, very far for you. And this is why whenever you guys provide another deck list and you're interested in my thoughts on it, I'm just going to always say that you should just be playing more Animate Deads and more Reanimates <laughs> and more Living Death. And I don't know why you guys are playing all of these islands and and 
planes in a mono black deck. I just, I don't understand. And this is why I stopped asking you for deck help <laughs> because of those reasons. Oh man. Okay guys, this was a whole bunch of fun and listeners would also love to know from you if there are other tips and different ideas that you've got about giving and receiving deck advice. We'd love to hear from you about ways that you go about it because it's a really important and collaborative part of the deck building process. But for now, let's call this episode to a close. So if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, fellas, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDH Retcast. Um, we have guests on every single week. Um, the games are always super fun. Um, we had Ellie of the Veil vale on recently, and there was so much smack talk talked. It was just wonderful. <laughs> absolutely a treat. Um, the guests are always super fun. So just make sure you tune in because they're it's just a, a blast. And Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can find me on my other podcast, CMDR Central, and I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and for Commander's Herald. And you can also find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Recast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDH Recast on both Facebook and Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the folks at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast, and we want to thank our sponsors. They are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com, and you can visit altersleeves.com slash EDHRecast for cool, custom EDHREC sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDHREC your deck before you wreck your deck.